Welcome everyone to the C-Suite Marketing Perspectives Podcast. I'm Steve McDonald, your host. And today we've got a really interesting subject. We've got Kevin Bobowski here, who is not only a CMO, been in the SaaS world for over 20 years, but been in and out of PE firms and then PE-backed startups. So Kevin has a, a really incredible set of insights from both sides of the fence. But ultimately what we want to learn today is what do we all need to know about these PE-backed models? How do they look at the business? What kind of processes and rigors do they put in place? What's good that we can learn from to apply to our business? So Kevin, with that kind of light introduction of you and what you're doing now, maybe you're CMO of AWARE, tell us a little bit about your background, what you're doing now, and then we'll get into the, the PE-backed model. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you for having me on board, Steve. I love talking marketing. So this is this is a lot of fun. I always find it interesting and uh, entertaining. And frankly, it's kind of beneficial too, because I learned from you and others as well. So, but like you said, I've been in SaaS now for 20 years, love it, just a student of the, the space. And I've been in both PE company, PE-backed companies. I've actually worked for a private equity firm for three and a half years, and then been in venture-backed businesses. And so uh, I'm excited to talk about the differences and the nuances across those different spaces. I'm currently with Aware right now, which is an AI data platform. And that's been a lot of fun. It's VC backed. It's been a lot of fun for me because as you know, everybody's talking about AI right now. And I've had a lot of fun learning about the nuances of our AI data platform, all of our ML models, how we built them. So this is just a great example of what I love about being a CMO and being in this space. It's always changing. You're always learning. And it's just really cool to dive into all these new hot topics that are emerging seemingly every day. Yeah, AI certainly is 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 top <laughs> the list in terms of what we all need to be thinking about and knowing. And I'm sure we could have a whole podcast on on your version of of AI and where that's headed. But what we want to get into here is, you know, we before the record button got pushed, we were talking about, you know, kind of the rigors and the processes and different things that a P firm or a VC backed, you know, uh, company that they're held accountable to the risk tolerances that, you know, are acceptable and not, why don't you just kind of get us uh, started here in terms of your perspective on this PE model and what we need to know. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a great topic. You know, just in general, I would say when you work for PE backed companies or a VC backed um, software company, it's, they're different models. And it's important, I think as a marketer and even a, practitioner, you know, operating within SaaS to understand both. P-back models tend to be a little bit more structured, more rigorous. I think there's a more focus on efficiency and, and sort of efficient growth. The VC models tend to focus more on how do you scale quickly, even if you're not doing so at the most efficient standards or opportunities, because there's big TAM, big market opportunities to capture. And Steve, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, I think what gets interesting, and I think what's important for marketers to know, is how to borrow the best of both of those worlds, because times change. And if you think about January 2022, we were in the midst of you know, the great resignation, people were jumping jobs, the, the funding market was hot. There was definitely a leaning towards how do we scale and grow quickly, even if we lose a little bit of efficiency, kind of getting to that SaaS rule of 40, but with the emphasis being more on the growth and the higher numbers and less on EBITDA. 
we go into the end of 2022, that market changed. We saw a huge number of layoffs in tech. The big tech companies, you know, had to do a number of layoffs. Now we're into this year, the funding market hasn't been tighter for, I don't know how long, perhaps a decade. You're not seeing as many exits. And so now the focus is still on the SaaS rule of 40, but a bigger emphasis on efficiency, EBITDA, and very responsible, efficient growth. And so that's why I think those understanding the nuances of these two models actually could be very beneficial because you don't know when you're going to apply each one. So give us kind of the, you know, PE versus VC model 101 in terms of what you think is are, are the top aspects of those models and that rigor that we as the rest of us in the B2B marketing community should be thinking about. Yeah. And even if we're not being, you know, held accountable at that level, that there's there's a lot of benefit, right, in 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 that line of thinking. And so kind of get us just kicked off and started if you could. Yeah, in the PE world, it's like I said, it's all about how do you how do you drive efficiency in the business? Because most PE firms when they buy a software company, they're looking at a two to five year timeline, right? So they want to make sure they improve the efficiency, solve core problems in the business um, and set that company up to be for a successful exit in a relatively short period of time. And if you think about private equity firms, what they've done very, very well is build out sort of standard process, standard playbooks, standard approaches for their businesses. And so when I worked for a PE back or private equity firm, we ran marketing for close to 20 different software companies within their portfolio. And we had a very specific playbook and an approach for, and even templates for how do we go to market? So what are the right, how do you define kind of a message map? How do you build out an integrated marketing campaign consistent across all of those? And then from the metrics perspective, there was an intense rigor across every aspect of the funnel, every channel, and looking at the changes in the performance across each of these, even small numbers like click-through rates on paid search were evaluated and analyzed in a lot of detail and a lot of depth. So Steve, I think one of the things that the PE firms are trying to try to do is instill their playbook in part standards because they believe if you can follow these standards, number one, you cut a lot of excess uh, waste in trying to figure out and getting everybody on the same page with different terminologies and things like that. And the second thing that you do is you have better diagnostics because you've run these models before and you can quickly identify what's working, what's not, and what you need to do to improve those. And so you have benchmarks, right, from across the portfolio over time. And so you know when a, a company, one of the companies in the portfolio is on target, exceeding target, needs help, and then with the with all of the you know, the data, you've, you've actually got a place to point and say, okay, here's where we think we're, we're falling short. Yeah. And, and it was interesting to you because when we were working with the different uh, software companies where we had the ability to kind of evaluate the benchmarks across these 20 different um, businesses, we were skeptical that you'd see any commonality across the benchmarks because you had some companies that did largely inbound versus outbound. There was some product-led growth, you name it. We had different models or, you know, different go-to-market approaches. Some had higher deal sizes, lower deal sizes, some sold to IT and other departments. But when you started mapping those up over time, it was remarkably consistent, uh, the benchmarks. And if there were deviations or differences, 
it could be easily explainable in a number of different ways. So that was one of my big surprises. I'm like, yeah, every company is different. You sell the different personas. But if you follow the structure process, what we found is pretty often you had a lot of commonalities and a lot of similarities across those different uh, businesses. So, you know, you're you're coming in now, you're CMO of Aware, and okay. you've got this perspective right across this portfolio which a lot of us as, as CMOs we haven't had that kind of experience right and and applying those processes and those rigors so when you come in as a CMO now you've got that background where are you starting where is your focus when you came in here based on everything that you learned before yeah so the, I love this question and I think I can break it down into three parts okay. I, I think the first part of it is when you start, I think there is a, a, a structured diagnostic of like what's working, what's not, what are the problems? That's kind of one. I think number then number two is how do you create some standard playbooks and approaches? And then three, how do you establish sort of a consistent workflow where you're putting in the rigor and really understand almost on a daily basis what's working and what's not? And for the things that aren't working, how do you improve those quickly? So you, you have this very quick cadence of from data analysis to decision and outcomes. So I think there's three of those. And I think, Steve, one of the things that I, I have talked about this at length with other marketers, some people love playbooks and some people hate playbooks. <laughs> you know, and they, they're like, you can't simplify that and all this other stuff. But I think the key, the key is the playbook, I think is really, a, it's probably more about workflow and how you operate the business. And so when I come in on day one to a company, there's a very, like I have an approach for how do I think about like what's working and what's not in the business. And I think you could look at the numbers of the business. You could look at um, our go-to-market, like how well is our I ideal customer profile defined, our persona. I think those are so consistent across any company that it's just where you need to look first. Right. And I think most of the time, what you find out, what I learned, Steve, is a lot of the right elements are in place. Like everybody says they have personas. Um, right. But then you dig into the personas and really what they are, their titles or their departments, they're not actually the buyers. And so that becomes conflated. And as you take your, your message to market, you kind of lose the fidelity and the effectiveness of that messaging, which then impacts what you're doing downstream with like outbound SDR calls, marketing campaigns and messages. So I always think you need to start there. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't have that basic understanding of who your ICP really is, right. And you're just going after titles, everything downstream is impacted. And just to build on that, um, I went, I was at Saster last week and, um, there was an incredible presentation, but I, I think it was the CRO or the CMO of product board. And she mm -hmm. talked about how she thinks about campaign messaging and the approach. And she had very defined frameworks. And she had, I think, maybe three different frameworks for how you do that. And she's like, if you don't get the messaging right, nothing else is going to matter, right? right? And so I think it's a perfect example of having a really precise template mm -hmm. that you can pull off the shelf and then everybody in, in the team understands it. It becomes easy to kind of figure out. Um, there's no kind of guesswork. And that really does set the team up for success. So on the opposite side of setting the team up for success in the PEVC world, right? 
there's something known as risk tolerance, right? And and all these PE and VC firms, they know that that there's X percentage of the companies in their portfolio that just aren't going to make it, right? That's just part of their model. Yet, when they're talking to you as one of those companies, there is no tolerance for risk, right? So how do you, when you're when you're executing this playbook and you're interfacing with the investors, how are you thinking about how you're appeasing their needs as well as the go-to-market needs and kind of reconciling that so that you're projecting there's less risk here than you would want to accept? Like, how do you balance that relationship? How do you align with that relationship? Yeah, I I think it comes back to, you, you'll hear this often around companies raise money on a TAM, but they raise their next round on their ability to execute on a very specific sliver of that TAM. And, you know, some people call it, I think it's serviceable, obtainable market or stuff like that. Right. I think the challenge that a lot of companies have is they want to go after their entire TAM right away. And you, the TAM is great for fundraising, but it's not for great for a go-to-market. So one of the things in terms of like how you balance this risk tolerance as a marketer, you need to have a very compelling story about how you're segmenting and targeting specific slivers of the marketplace. And then if you do that, then the downstream impact should make you much more efficient because in a private equity firm, there's a big push of spend a dollar to get a dollar. VC companies, that's not always the case because you're also experimenting and trying to find out which slivers of those marketplaces or those markets which persona are resonate best with you. But in private equity firms, I think you, there's an expectation you have the product market fit, you've established uh, that piece already, and now you're really trying to find that repeatability in the model. Yeah, uh, you know, investors, they hate a company coming in and saying, and all we need is 1% of TAM and look what'll happen, right? Like it's just going to magically, you know, happen. So I get that and in terms of, identifying the specific slivers of the TAM, that those are big enough, that there's growth or scalability there and how you're going to attack that market instead of trying to be everything to everyone. Yep. And that's what happens. So many companies, in, and I'm talking to CMOs on a regular basis, and they're like, yeah, Steve, we got too many ICPs. We've got like eight ICPs. You know, all that means is you're trying to be too much to too many because that 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 breaks down then into ICPs and vertical markets and this matrix different questions, different conversations that need to be had. And that messaging, then that content just explodes in terms of what you need to do. So, Steve, yeah, you, you nailed that as a real common problem because in a VC back world, one of the common challenges you'll see is you raise money on the TAM and the big story and the vision that that story becomes conflated into the go to market. And to your point, you have multiple ICPs, multiple personas, because you're thinking about titles more, you're thinking about verticals, and all of a sudden you have something that's really largely unsustainable, and that's where you in this end up in this inefficient place. Whereas PE firms, they recognize this, and you know we had this at the, our private equity back company. I had it at the last company that I was at with private equity. They have templates and approaches to help you through that, so you can identify that sliver of TAM to execute against. And when you solve that and you get that, it's rigorous, it requires discipline, but you get that, it simplifies everything downstream. Simplification to a private equity firm means efficiency 
It means repeatability. It means the ability to diagnose what's working and what's not because you have standards across the board. I think that might right there. And I always, so at the end of the of the recording, I always ask, hey, Kevin, you know, what's the big takeaway? I'm feeling like that's the big takeaway already, right? That the idea of simplifying isn't narrowing down the opportunities. It's ask, actually escalating the opportunity, right? Because it's much easier to be something significant and unique to that sliver or sl small slivers of the marketplace than it is to everybody. Uh, and that, that's basic thinking. But I like your, when you said you raise money off the TAM and then all of a sudden that goes into the, the market or the go-to-market strategy. You're like, hey, that's our TAM. This is what we're doing, right? And it puts a, a, a the wrong mentality forward to begin with. Um, Tell me, yeah, go ahead. And that's and that's why a little bit like why well, I think how companies might end up in private equity firms because they haven't figured out that first part of like who is their real addressable target market, and then you just it it becomes an expensive go to market process. You hire too many marketing folks, too many SDRs, too many salespeople. We've we've all seen that before where you scale before you have repeatability, and so I I think that that piece is the most. It really is. Uh, it's cr crucial to get that piece nailed down. You know, I'm I'm looking at some of our notes. And so I'm taking a little bit of a right turn here, but I want to make sure that we talk about this. And um, you talked about, you know, the race to zero and marketing tied to revenue, demand capture, and this race to zero. What what does that mean? What what is that? So you I actually I'll I'll talk about it because I think you've seen it a little bit in private equity, but you're seeing it even in VC today, where when marketing departments are under pressure to perform. And companies are under pressure to cut costs. They cut marketing spend and they cut all the marketing spend that's tied, that's not tied directly to pure revenue. And so all that's left in the marketing department is what you call demand capture. You spend a dollar and you get some dollar out of it. Paid search is a great example of that, right? Maybe email marketing programs if it's paid. And so companies will anchor on that demand capture side. And we had tested this model out at the private equity firm that I work for, and I've tested it out in other places, where eventually, if you're only doing demand capture, you see a slow and steady decline in your overall performance that eventually takes you to zero. And I think a really good example that I talked to with marketers at Saster, this was actually a really common example. A lot of marketing departments are being asked to cut costs. They're cutting their LinkedIn spend because LinkedIn spend is not... Yeah is not directly attributable, but number of companies had to do that. And what they found was their organic search went down their, in terms of value, their direct traffic, even the performance of their paid search because LinkedIn was performing. I have a really good example where um, at Aware, it's kind of, a, kind of a unique name. So our SDRs, when they do outbound calling, they say Aware HQ, which is our URL. Well, it turns out that's a very high percentage of our direct or like our traffic that comes in for people searching Aware HQ. Mm. And so we know that phone calls from outbound SDRs lead to people visiting our sites. When you start thinking about cutting programs that don't contribute directly to, you know, they have that one-to-one -one directly attributable relationship, you run the risk of cutting out the demand creation piece, which will ultimately force you down to that uh, race to zero. Yeah, you'll, you'll find this uh, fascinating because I uh, interviewed a CMO about a month ago 
And it was in this, you know, this world where marketing budgets are being constricted and everything. So you're forced to do things you typically wouldn't necessarily do. And, and particularly marketing spend that isn't directly attributed to revenue. So they took their event dollars, which is a significant amount of money that they've traditionally done because you got to be there, right? You're going to be conspicuous by your absence. You know, people are going to like top of mind, remember you, they saw your booth, all the things that happen at a, an event. And they just stopped doing events. Mm. And they saw a direct impact 15% reduction on their direct demand capture campaigns as a result. And there was an experiment that they never intended to do, right? But when you do that, all of a sudden, exactly what you're saying is because there's not, there's all kinds of marketing attribution models, but you can't always create even the dotted line, right? Between some of that spend. And so it's, it's fascinating to hear you say that. And, and I just had a conversation recently, you know, the same thing about you've got to be able to then as a CMO, you've got to be able to convince your CEO, the PE firm, your CRO, right? Who has a, 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 you know, a quarterly quota over their head and very, very focused on near-term demand gen, that all those outside influences put a lot of pressure on CMOs to go for that, that demand capture in the short term, yeah. right? And to build on it, because I think you're touching on something really important, Steve, that's the difference between thinking of marketing as a cost center versus a revenue center. And mm -hmm. what ends up happening is, in these times when there's like, you know, cut cost cutting and you need to reduce costs, um, companies will look at the individual channel performance of marketing programs and cut based on that. And then when you do that, you're left with only those demand capture programs. You're not, you're not doing any of the demand creation like events or speaking at events. And so I, I think that's what marketers need to be thinking about is sell the portfolio and not sell the individual channel. And because yes, paid search works, but paid search will work better if you have people speaking at events or doing other demand creation activities. And I think that's a really big missing piece with for marketers today. It's tough to figure that out. It's really hard to, because there's no direct line. It's interesting. I literally talked to another uh, CMO yesterday and she said, today's brand is tomorrow's demand. Love it. Love it. Isn't yep. that neat to be able to put that and think about that in those simple kind of terms, right? Because you can't cut off, you know, you can't, today's brand, and it's more than just, okay, we need, you know, name recognition, brand awareness. In today's B2B model, sellers don't want to be sold to, they want to be advised, right? And that means is you have to have that stature, you have to have that subject matter expertise, you have to have that knowledge to educate and to advise, that's a level above product marketing. It's a, a level above the, the subject matter expertise that most SaaS companies are, are really good at, which is talking about our babies, right? Yeah. You know, we are we are really good subject matter experts in that, right? But that that brand, that expertise level, tell me a little bit about that in terms of the PE mindset, the VC mindset, and spending money to be perceived as the thought leader, the expert, right? Somebody yeah. that's worthy of a buyer spending their time listening to. Yeah. So I'll I'll make two comments on that because I think what what I often think about is demand. Demand will drive revenue today. And I love this brand will become demand, but I actually think of brand as a valuation play. Mm -hmm. And 
So, mm. so you know, like part people would, you know, like I've been part of firms that are like, listen, should we invest in Gartner and Forrester and find our, you know, work towards getting it in the magic quadrant or a wave because it's not going to drive any demand. I'd argue that point. I actually think it can, but if you're one or two on one of those, that is a valuation play, right? All the valuation and markets go to the one and one and two players. So when you think about thought leadership and when you think about press and press press is another great thing, you have to think about that as a valuation play as well as moving it from brand to demand in the future. The way PE firms think about it is you got to hit your number with the demand side. So you have to drive increasing efficiencies. And so you can take the efficiencies that you gain and apply that to very specific very like very structured demand program or uh, brand programs that will drive that. Um, and, and we've, we've tested that out. We knew that like, if you did display ads is even though display ads are often um, seen as not effective, it uplifted all of our other channel performance and pipeline performance as well. So we know it works. Yeah. Yeah. There's those, those soft measures, right? So I want to be able to ask this question and it goes back a little bit into our conversation we just had, that woman that was, you know, speaking at Saster and the the way that she crafted the message, right? Because the message and the way I think about that in terms of that message then is delivered through content, right? Mm -hmm. So I ask this question in every podcast that I do. All right. So here you go. I want you to put on a scale of one to 10, the importance of content to the overall growth and success of the company. One, not important at all, right? 10, it's actually vital to the growth and success of the company. Where would you rate content in that scale? I, it's a 10 for me because without content, there's not like there's nothing else. Like content drives SEO. Content is what is an offer is for a campaign. Um, content is what our SDRs and sales team will talk to the benefits, right, of our platforms, Content is how we talk with our customers on making sure they're getting value. So to me, content is everything. Right. And so there are different forms of content that you could use at different times, top, middle, bottom. I think there's the discussions around what kind of content is best for those different stages. But without content, there really isn't any marketing. Yeah, it's the it's the fuel, it's the gas, it's the lubricant, it's ever, you know, that's what we that's what we promote, right? And uh, if you had to do kind of a balance of that different kinds of marketing, because we just got through talking about that. It's really easy. And, and, and by the way, I'm a SaaS founder. So I fell into the exact same category of, you know, we talk about what we do and my goodness, the floodgates, they open, right? As soon as somebody just knows, right. And it just doesn't work that way. Right. Product leg growth is a real thing, but the bottom line is there's, there's plenty of studies that are out there that show that, if a, a company's perception of you as a as a company is equally as important as the products and services that you deliver, right? And that's that trusted advisor, that's that, that authenticity, that that component. When you think about creating content, if you were going to think about content that promoted the company as an expert, subject matter expert, a trusted advisor, versus content that talks specifically about products, benefits, features, both extremely important. But if you could give kind of a balance in terms of where your focus you know, would be in terms of the amount of effort that needs to be put in, the amount of content that needs to be uh, created, what would that balance be? 
Yeah, and I always think about that, Steve, in terms of right place, right time, right situation. And so, you know, I believe that you do need that effective, trusted advisor, thought leadership. Uh, we've been doing a lot of videos recently. We're finding like the video um, production process is actually kind of fun. People enjoy it. We get to promote our expert employees, so we give them a voice. But people, our prospects and customers are finding a lot of value in it. So we've been we've been a little bit more focused, I would say, on top middle of funnel with some video and things that we've been doing lately. But I also believe that um, you need to be able to deliver on the business value and the benefits that you deliver to your target market. I just think there's less of those. And you certainly wouldn't lead with that kind of content into the market. And that's that's a situation. Um, I also think, you know, it's it's a good diagnostic, too, because if you have a lot of people coming in, but low conversions, maybe you're not articulating or converting those people from moving from thought leadership and trusted advisor into the benefits of your product. Right. Um, and it, conversely, if you have nobody coming in at top, then maybe you need to invest more at the top. So I, I think it's a little bit of both and depends on the situation, but I think you have to have both to, to be successful. And does the PE model, does that acknowledge that there needs to be that thought leadership level of, of content marketing created? It does. And it depends on the type of company because in some companies, the market could be so big that there are others in the marketplace that are educating for you. Mm -hmm. So then you write coattails on their thought leadership in that demand creation model. But there's other markets where if you reformulate your go-to-market, you reformulate your target market and the personas you're going, it requires more of that thought leadership. And what you'd find, and we, we actually tested this and piloted this at the PE firm, we did find that video and speaking, like getting real subject matter experts, the CTO of the company talking about the nuances of the product and the details, technical details, it matters. And so there is definitely a passion for that in the PE world. It will just be more structured and there will be more process and certainly more scrutiny around the performance of those. Yeah. We're finding the same kind of thing in terms of, you know, short form video um, and the, the voice of authenticity coming from inside and outside of the company, right? Because no matter what, you are the seller. So you, as the company, when there are outside voices that are validating your point of view and what you're saying, it just accelerates that whole process. Yeah. Um, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, I think that's, um, it is, you're right. You're hundred percent. So, well, it, Kevin, I want to make sure that I do have the opportunity, even though I think I answered it for you. If there was one takeaway um, that you want to have everybody have from the, the conversation we had here today, what would that be? I, I think um, I think the takeaway that I have is, uh, you know, we talked a couple, a couple different topics. I, I'm just really passionate around making sure you've got the right go-to-market that starts at the very top. Do you have the right segment of the market that you're pursuing? Do you, have you identified the personas correctly with not a department or a title, but actually the buyer of your product, do you understand them? I think if you solve those problems, everything downstream, including content creation, becomes easier and more will become more effective. And I think the mistakes, we all have made it, it happens all the time, but I think you conflate a story to investors and perhaps even analysts with day-to-day -day buyers and even with the C-suite, which is sometimes different than the buyer of your product. 
And I think making sure you really understand at what elevation or altitude you're flying really helps you solve that problem. And if you solve that at the top, everything will make its way through in a much more efficient way. Makes perfect sense. I'm going to um, do this. If people had follow-on questions and wanted to ask and get in contact with you, would sharing your link on LinkedIn, be, would that be the best place to do that? That'd be perfect. Yep. Love LinkedIn. There's so much great content. So that's the best place. All right. Well, great. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. Such incredible, you know, from the very, very basics of the business that we all know, but the rigors of like going from TAM down to these segments and, and that drives absolutely everything. It's a really good reminder in that. And it's really good to know that the the firms that you've been at that that have the playbooks down, that that's a, that's a major part of that, right? That should be something that we should take heart in. Um, just thank you for all the insights that you you shared today. And thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. So I really enjoyed it. So love talking about this stuff.